The first retreat I ever did was a Zen weekend retreat. So I was just reflecting that was uh, about 30 years ago. And um, it was just a weekend. It was so difficult and so challenging that I swore to myself at the end, I would never meditate again. <laughs> it sucked in a lot of ways. <laughs> it was just really painful. And given where I was in my life, just kind of emotionally and things like that, it was just a huge challenge. And even though I had that thought, I'm never going to do this again. It, it struck a chord. And in particular, what it struck is, is I felt like I'd finally touched my life in a real way. There was something real about it that I touched, even in the midst of it being so challenging. And I think the realness of it was that I started to touch a different way of living, a different way of being in my life. Like I could sense that, oh, here's, here's a doorway or a gateway into something different. So in, sometimes when I reflect back on that retreat, uh, especially for those of you who maybe this is a new retreat, I'm, sometimes I come in here and I'm surprised that everyone's still here. It's like, wow, <laughs> what's up with that? Um, and touched by that. Not that this retreat is, you know, as difficult as, as my first retreat was, but still, I have that feeling. And in light of that, I, I want to uh, frame the, the piece of the Genjo, Genjo Koan that I'll be going over in this simple statement that the, the Buddha made in these early Buddhist texts, which probably most of you know, of him being so clear and direct about what he's teaching about and what he's not teaching about. He said, you know, I, I teach only two things, suffering and the end of suffering. This is really what I'm interested in. And I loved that clarity about kind of the project or what, what he was interested in, in clarifying. You know, the dynamics of our difficulty and the way through them. And I want to tie that to just two lines that I want to go over in the Genjo Koan. It's in the second paragraph here. And uh, in, some, in some translations, this is the beginning of the second paragraph. The, and yet an attachment blossoms fall and an aversion weed spread goes to the first paragraph. And just these two lines, to carry yourself forward and experience myriad things is delusion. That myriad things come forth and experience themselves is awakening. And I love this because I feel like in, in two lines we're given so much of this path. To carry yourself forward and experience myriad things is delusion. That's that we could call suffering, another word for delusion, or the feeling of dis-ease. And that's the first thing I want to talk about is, is have you noticed how you carry yourself forward? And as a result of that, there's more dis-ease in your life. There's more suffering. What are some examples of that? 
And then to also look at the, the, the opposite when we're not carrying ourselves forward, when rather myriad things come forth and experience themselves, that's awakening. That's the, the end of suffering. So yeah, how to understand these. So to begin with the first about this process of carrying ourselves forward and experiencing the world, how it's delusion, how it's going to create that sense of dukkha of not quite rightness. And in order to share that, I want to share with you a, a poem that was written by Virginia Hamilton Adair. So Virginia Hamilton Adair was a poet and she lived in Claremont, Cal California. And she used to drive up to the Zen monastery or Zen center that I was uh, doing most of my training, Mount Baldy Zen Center in the San Gabriel Mountains. And she, she wrote a poem about doing session, about being on retreat and what that was like and the process. And she named this, this poem Zazen, which literally means sitting meditation. Za is in Zafu is sitting and Zen is, well, Zen is Zen. <laughs> it's meditation, sitting meditation. So this is what she says. When I first floundered in, no one knew me, not even myself. Staggering under a Saratoga trunk, you could say if people don't know what a Saratoga trunk is, staggering under a, a suitcase that's crammed with humiliations, bottled like urine samples, nail kegs of anger, carbons of abusive letters, chemistry quizzes with F's, even the horse I never had, and the two casseroles left over from the Dime a Dip supper. No one remarked that I had brought too much. I was wearing three fur hats donated by opulent cousins, my feet encased in cement ever since the failure of the patio project, and my mouth full of barbs as an old trout. No one praised me on my appearance. The trunk fell off my back, disgorging its unusual contents at my stone feet, which also came, fat, came off. The fur hats tumbled like a moth-eaten avalanche burying a small monk. No one noticed. My sweat began to dry. I folded myself into one piece. No one. Have you noticed the Saratoga trunk that you brought to retreat? <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's amazing all the things we carry around with us, don't you think? And most of those things, I don't think we're on the IRC list of things to bring. <laughs> and yet here they are. <laughs> this is carrying myself forward. I'm carrying, this is who I am in some way. This is me. And it's so oppressive. And I, I appreciate, you know, the list she gives that really determine how I carry myself forward and how I see myself. 
like chemistry quizzes with F's. How what happens in school shapes who we are. I mean, maybe some of you have gotten F's. You know what that's like, right? It, it shapes, it determines how we, we carry ourselves forward. And it's not only the things we get. This is what I so love. She said, even the horse I never had. Oh, here it is again. And to carry that around, to carry it forward, the things that I didn't get, not only the things I got. And we carry that forward into our lives and, and into our experience. So have you noticed this? Have you noticed yourself carrying yourself forward and experiencing the world that way? Carrying that Saratoga trunk around. Maybe it's the worries about work or about your kids or about your health or the political situation or the environmental situation. There they are right there here in your Saratoga trunk on the retreat. And I want to point out, yeah, some of these aren't just merely mentally fabricated. Some of these are, are real dilemmas in, in this human predicament that we find ourselves in. So I'm not trying to minimize them, but it's more about how the mind carries them forward that creates so much suffering. Have you noticed these? or the judgments about towards yourself or the judging of others. Wow. It's such a heavy suitcase. Don't you think? And when I carry those around, there's a kind of delusion about that. I'm not really fully here. I'm, I'm lost. I'm, I'm hooked. And as I mentioned, we do do this to others. I mean, it can be so fascinating on retreat. Maybe you've had, you know, some people, maybe some of you know each other really well, but probably most of the folks, you know, you've, you've bumped into on this retreat, you don't know very well. And yet here on the second day, sometimes we can have a sense that we kind of know these other people. We kind of like them or we kind of don't like them. That's just a fabrication, isn't it? That's, that's carrying, carrying ourselves forward in this manner. This is what we do. You know, Anais Nin and and her autobiographical autobiographical novel. One of her characters says, "We do not see things as they are; we see them as we are." So important to notice that this is what the mind is doing so much of the time. We do not see things as they are; we see them as we are. This is what Dogen's talking about, the sense of 
carrying oneself forward and experiencing the world, experiencing myriad things. And I want to point out how subtle this can be, this carrying myself forward and experiencing the world. There's this simple haiku by Basho who, that really exemplifies this, this activity that Dogen, I think, is pointing to. And, ba and Basho's haiku, just these three simple lines. In Kyoto, hearing the cuckoo, I long for Kyoto. Have you noticed how the mind can do that? You see a beautiful flower, you feel the breeze, you feel the breathing. And then it's like, oh, I long, I long for this. I long to be in such a, such a great state. <laughs> Here I am carrying myself forward just around simple experiences, complicating them. You know, in, in Kyoto, hearing the cuckoo, oh, I long for Kyoto. Again, this is the, the Buddha of early Buddhism points to this so much is that there might be this beautiful, pleasant experience, whether it be a sound or a sight. And then I long for it. I complicate it. I'm not just with it and not touching the beauty of it. I instead carry myself forward. This is what the mind does. And maybe more accurately, it would have been good for Dogen to say that I don't carry myself forward. I carry society forward. I carry my family forward. Have you noticed this? Right? We, we do that. The, the judgments, the anger, the fear, the anxiety, the addictions, the self-hatred. Right? We come by it honestly. What I notice about my mind, it's like it's, it's just been taught to try to navigate the world in that way. Family, society. It teaches me this. It teaches me maybe this is the way to freedom. Maybe this is the way to happiness or contentment. It's not very good messages. It hasn't really <laughs> led to much freedom for me. But maybe you've noticed the same thing about your own mind. I find it so helpful to acknowledge this because then I don't have to take all of the stuff that arises in the mind so personally. I've, I've been thrown into this predicament. And then I'm merely playing out those dynamics of family and society. And then it also gives a, a power to what we're doing here. I'm not only freeing my own heart and mind, this is freeing society. This is freeing those family conditions to put an end to them right here and now. 
What a worthy thing to do with your time to be on retreat and to undo those patterns. And yeah, and some of those patterns can be so subtle about how we carry ourselves forward, how we view ourselves, how we view others. And one of the great things on retreat is sometimes it can happen so quickly of, of how the mind responds or reacts, what it's attracted to, what it's not attracted to, what is invisible to this mind, what is visible to this mind. You know, they did this one very large study. It was using data from over 700,000 participants. And in the study, they were flash, flashing images of people appearing to be different ages. And what they found was this implicit bias, this kind of bias that usually is quite unconscious, this implicit bias against older looking bodies compared to the bias towards younger-looking by, uh, bodies. And this was found in, in participants of all ages. Right. Ageism is a real thing in our society. And it is, you know, can be quite subtle. And this is the, the interesting thing, is that when uh, what they looked at, it was... Uh, comparing this to what's called explicit bias. This means when somebody asks me, do you have a bias against older looking bodies? And what I would say when I was asked. So what, what people tell, tell the reporters when they ask. And the biggest contrast between the implicit bias and the explicit bias was found in older people. So interesting in terms of that. And it can be so, so something that we do so commonly, right? I, I want to look like a good person. We're all good meditators here. And yet our minds might be carrying these dynamics of judgments. What a beautiful thing to put an end to that. Of course, it's not only around age. It's, it's around all kinds of dynamics, the size of bodies, you know, the skin color of bodies, the gender of bodies. I find this so interesting on retreat. Have you, have you noticed this when you're on retreat that you can see someone else and assume the mind so quickly assumes what gender they are. Isn't that a trip? <laughs> like who knows, <laughs> who knows what gender that person ascribes to. And yet it can feel so real. We do not see things as they are. We see things as we are. Ah, this is to carry yourself forward and experience the myriad things. That's, that's delusion.
so what's the way out of this? How to be free from this? How to move in, hopefully, to the next sentence? <laughs> to allow myriad things, to allow the world to come forward and experience themselves. And to see, oh, that's freedom, that, that's awakening. How do we do this really from this Vipassana perspective, this, this perspective of insight meditation? How do we engage in the meditation? Here's one description of what we're doing here on retreat. And this comes from uh, the great Thai forest um, monastic Ajahn Chah. And what I love about Ajahn Chah is his, his examples are so down to earth. That's what I love about the way he talks about uh, Dhamma practice. So he says, suppose at home you have a pet monkey. And monkeys don't stay still for long. They like to jump around and grab onto things. That's how monkeys are. Now you come to the retreat and you see the monkey here. And this monkey doesn't stay still either. It jumps around just the same. But it doesn't bother you, does it? Why doesn't it bother you? Because you've raised a monkey before. You know what they're like. If you know just one monkey, no matter how many provinces you go to, no matter how many monkeys you see, you won't be bothered by them, will you? This is one who understands monkeys. If we understand monkeys, then we won't become a monkey. If you don't understand monkeys, you may become a monkey yourself. Do you understand? When you see it reaching for this and that, you shout, hey, you get angry. That damn monkey. This is one who does not understand monkeys. One who knows monkeys sees that the monkey at home and the monkey at retreat are just the same. Why should you get annoyed by them? When you see what monkeys are like, that's enough. Then you can be at peace. This is all we're doing here is we're just seeing the monkey. <laughs> it's just about seeing the unfolding of experience. This, this great book title by Rob Berbea, Rob, Rob Berbea, The Scene That Frees. I just need to see what the mind is doing to clearly see it. This is this turn into meditation. You know, you know, Max has been setting up of just sitting, just being with it so we can see. And then he said, you know, what, what are you saying this morning? What insight meditation brings to this just sitting is this clarity of the details about really seeing the monkey. Because when I, when I see it, then I, I don't have to carry myself forward in these unskillful ways that creates delusion on an individual and collective level.
So it's an example of this kind of scene. Just a little bit, give more details about how this might unfold on retreat. Once upon a time, I was on a month-long retreat. <laughs> so it's Spirit Rock. And uh, my retreat was really de deepening and my, my mind was really getting quite calm and collected. And um, there was an individual sitting next to me and then the, the, the kind of the Zabatons, the cushions were kind of this close together. And he was in city, sitting in front of me. And I remember I was sitting, um, I was sitting a little bit longer as extending the sit. So I was sitting into the walking meditation. And after the bell would ring and people would venture out for the walking meditation, I would hear this kind of this body moving right in front of me and this kind of yawning and stretching. And uh, I remember opening my eyes and it was like this person's head was almost in my lap because they were doing these yoga poses, these yoga stretches <laughs> right in their cushion, right in front of me. Um, which I found to be an unpleasant experience. <laughs> I wish it was only an unpleasant experience and that I could tell you that. But of course, especially on a silent retreat, I'm fuming, I'm pissed off. You know, here I am, like somebody's disturbing my samadhi. <laughs> and, you know, the way my mind works is when it gets angry, it gets self-righteous. And, and so all the stories start churning, you know, from wanting to tap him on the shoulder and have a conversation to leaving the note, a note for the managers to really explain what's going on and how they have to make an announcement to no yoga, no, no yoga in the meditation hall. And when I have those thoughts, I feel so right. You ever have those thoughts where you like, you feel so right. It, 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 they're so convincing. And so I remember being in that state. And often when I find myself, in that state, sometimes I have to remind myself, Brian, do you want to be right or do you want to be free? That's, a, that's an important distinction. Because being right all the time, boy, it's just not worth it to sacrifice freedom for it at times. And this was the beginning to seeing the monkey. I needed to have some space around this because you might notice sometimes things get difficult in a way where it's difficult to even have the space to be mindful of them. And then I needed another component that I bring into my practice quite a bit around this scene, the scene how the mind is carrying me forward. And that's this one word, yes, which is yes, this too is my practice. Because maybe you've noticed, maybe even on retreat here, have you noticed the things that arise that feel like they're not your practice, like they're getting in the way of practice? You ever notice that? Or is that just me? <laughs> maybe it hasn't happened. We're only on day two. <laughs> but it's especially the things that feel like, oh, this is getting in the way. Oh, that's, this too is my practice. Yes. Can I make this into my practice? This is what it's about. I am so down for this. This is why I'm on retreat. I want to see the monkey. 
Because it's the same thing that's going on at home. And when I get that yes there, then it, it creates a curiosity so that mindfulness and seeing can be there. And sometimes what needs to come with that too, if I'm having a really hard time, is self-compassion. Because sometimes what my mind does, and I know I spoke this to a few people about this, my mind can have such a tendency to minimize what I'm going through. Kind of a bucking up like, come on, Brian, seriously. It's just somebody stretching in front of you. Get over it. You know, maybe some of you can relate to that. My mind is society. This is so much male conditioning. Come on, come on. Don't be such a wuss. That kind of thing. I have not found that very helpful in my life, just to be clear. <laughs> That's societal conditioning. Oh, my mind is society. And then it's the softening that I, I so appreciated Max sharing with us this morning. Oh, wow. I'm having a hard time. And I care about myself. You know, may I be free from suffering. So there's a softening there. And when I soften, mindfulness can arise. And then it's just beginning to notice actually what's going on. What's going on? A sound is arising. A sight when I open up my eyes. And that sound is unpleasant or the sight is unpleasant. And not only that, there is a sense of anger there or irritation. Oh, this is seeing the monkey. This is actually what's going on. This is what makes it so difficult is there's a sound or a sight and it's unpleasant. And then there's a part of the mind that says this shouldn't be going on. Oh, that's, that's the monkey. It's saying this shouldn't be going on. So hopefully you're hearing in mindfulness. It takes what I call the one turn, right? It's the one turn out of the content of what's going on and toward the state of mind that is arising. So if it's all just about someone doing yoga in front of me in the hall, that's just going to perpetuate my dukkha. And of course, this is complex out in the world. We have to take on content at times. So, so this isn't, I'm not trying to give a universal teaching, but having this ability to step out of the content at times and to notice what the mind is doing. That's where the freedom is. Can you make the one turn? Okay. So there's a sound, there's a sight. And how is the mind relating to this? It's not liking it. Oh, there's an emotion there. Interesting. And it's those states of mind that I want to get to know. Well, that's the monkey. And when I see it, there's freedom. Can you make the one turn in your meditation practice? And if you make the one turn, maybe you're seeing a beautiful flower and you make the one turn and you notice there is no complication in the mind whatsoever. It's just the scene of beauty, right? That's, that's the second sentence that Dogen is, is pointing to. Oh, there's an experience of myriad things coming forth like the beauty of a flower and experiencing itself like I'm so intimate with it. Ah, uh, there's a moment of freedom. 
it's not only about seeing when the mind is carrying itself forward and complicating things, but what about those other moments where that's not happening? But it's so important to take some time to learn this one turn of being mindful of how experience is unfolding and to have an entire week just to do that is so powerful. Because what makes this happen is not just one experience, it's the repetition of making the one turn that it starts to become natural in our meditation. Somebody summed up uh, Aristotle's view of what it is to be ethical in this one sentence of that excellence, excellence in our living is a habit, not an act. This is really important. It's a habit I'm learning. It's, it's the habit of mindfulness that I'm learning of taking the one turn again and again and again, that it starts to become a natural way of seeing the unfolding of experience. And then I have this tool that leads to awakening. So not the content, but toward what the mind is doing with it. Checking in every so often. Is the mind really grasping? Is it pushing away? Is it just lost? Or is there just presence? And it's those moments of just presence that I also want to speak to. This is really this second line of Dogen's. Oh, myriad things coming forth and experiencing themselves. In other words, when I get out of the way, and maybe you've had these experiences, maybe this is why there's an attraction to meditation because you've felt this potential of being present. You know, getting out of the way in a good way, this sense, not complicating experience. You know, sometimes the word that you find used in, in Zen around this is this quality of intimacy. This closeness that happens. You know, the, the word uh, sometimes translated as intimacy, at least in the Zen uh, context, uh, is uh, shinsetsu, which literally means to the point, but it's... Um, uh, sometimes used uh, in the sense of having intimate connections. Like uh, Aiken Roshi, it gives the example of um, like you, you bring a gift to a friend or, you know, to, to someone's home. And when you were to bring that gift, they would say that you were very shinsetsu, you're very warm hearted, generous, a kind of closeness that comes from such an act. Becoming intimate with experience where I'm not complicating it, it's just being there with what's arising. And it can feel like that, like the, the poet Jane Hersfield puts it well. She says, only when I am quiet for a long time and do not speak, do the objects of my life draw near. And maybe you've had this experience 
You know, as we continue to be quiet for a long time and do not speak, sometimes it feels like experience draws near. The breath draws near. Maybe you've had those moments where you feel closer to the feeling of the breathing, closer to the sight of a flower or to a sound arising and passing away. Feeling closer to the movement of the body when you're doing walking meditation alone or in the group. And it can feel like that, like, like experience coming forward. Another way of getting the sense of intimacy. Hey Max, is that other bell over there? The small bell? Thank you so much. Forgot to get it. <laughs> it's my job. Is it's it's how we see things, also how we approach things. There's a there's a um, same word both in in uh, Pali and Sanskrit, uh, uh, tatata, which is usually translated as just as it is, or just this suchness. This up. And this uh, tatata, suchness, it starts to gain a little bit different meaning as Buddhism unfolds. It's used a little bit differently. You do find it in the, the Pali discourses, in the early Buddhist texts. But in Zen, it's this, it's this sense of, of this intimacy that I'm talking about, where myriad things come forward to experience themselves rather than me carrying myself forward and experiencing themselves. And the best way to get a sense of uh, tatata, suchness, is sometimes through this example of these bells. I have this bell and this bell. And when you see these bells, right, here's the small bell and here's the big bell, right? And this is so much of how we relate to experience is through comparing. We see this in the context of this other bell. And here they are. But it's so different to just to have a sense of just this. The simplicity and intimacy of experience in that way. In the same way, can you have a same experience with the breath? It's, it's just this, just the way it is right now. Not getting lost of this breath is better or worse than it was an hour ago. It's just this. The feeling of the body moving right now, just this. Oh, anger, interesting, just this. Sadness. Just this. Can you notice those moments of suchness, of coming closer to experience, where the mind isn't complicating experience, where you're not carrying yourself forward in the way I'm describing it? You're just there with experience, even if it's for a moment. 
There's a, a great Zen story about this um, Japanese villager by the name of Kichibei. And Kichibei, uh, his wife uh, got ill. And as a result of that, he was the main caregiver. And for those of you who have been caregivers, how much time that takes, both emotionally and physically, to caretake someone, and especially at the same time needing to work. And and Kichibei was in the situation of needing to take care of his uh, ill partner. And, and his fellow villagers came up to him and said, uh, Kichibei, you must be exhausted from all of this working, you know, to take care of your wife like this and do all these things. You know, how's it going? And he said, oh, no, I'm not exa exhausted at all. And they said, how so? And he said, because each moment is both a first experience and a last experience. Each moment with my wife is a first experience and a last experience. It's just this. Do you hear how that's different? When I can really land that? It's not one more thing after another. It's just one thing. And then it's just one thing. And it's just one thing. Rather than the stories that I heap upon it. Can you taste that? Can you allow the heart to open to momentary experience in that way? And sometimes it can be quite powerful when our hearts open to the moment. There's a Japanese um, nun, uh, Rengitsu, she, she wrote this partially irreverent poem. That's what I love about Zen is the the subtle and not so subtle irreverence or pushing the edges of of what it is to practice and how they describe things. And I feel like she's talking about the spiritual intimacy in this poem. She says, clad in black robes, I should have no attractions to the shapes and sense of this world. But how can I keep my vows gazing at today's crimson maple leaves? Can you hear the pull, the pull of the world to be intimate, to allow myriad things to come forth and experience themselves? To free the heart in that way. So on this retreat, may, may we start to really understand and clearly see how we carry forward ourselves and experience the world and create delusion. And by making the one turn out of the content and noticing how the mind's relating to experience. And then can you notice, even if it's for a moment or a second, these moments 
of suchment, such, suchness, of just this, of intimacy. That feeling of, of myriad things coming forth and experience themselves. And the taste, even if it's a small taste, the taste of freedom in that. Yeah, so may such a, a movement in our practice lead to the liberation of all beings. Thank you. Let's just sit for a moment here.